Hey, let's have a look at this wonderful reading in Jonah. If you've got your Bibles there, Jonah chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 16. It's a great passage. Jonah chapter 1. It's a hard book to find. There's only four, four chapters. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, to the great city of Nineveh and preach against Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went abroad and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should, we do to you? what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead... The men did their best to throw back, row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, have done, Lord, have done, you, Lord, have done us as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Open up your Bibles to to Jonah. It's a hard book to find. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, it's it's sort of in one of those hard spots. So it's okay to look awkward there at the moment as you shuffle through or have to skip to the front. That's okay. But I'd like you to have this book open in front of you because over the next four weeks we're going to be looking at this, this small book that actually has a very big message for all of us. So grab it open there, leave it open there and we can look at this one chapter. I encourage you um, each week, read through Jonah, read it in one sitting and then maybe even read a chapter a week and study it um, and, and hear how God is speaking to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that now as your word is opened up, that we'll have faith to see. Lord, help us to see where there's this disconnection in our lives between what we believe and often how we act. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, it was January, my lovely wife, Ali, she went to Ireland for a wedding for a friend. I wasn't able to go. I had to watch the three boys. But on her way back, she flew through Germany and stopped off there for a couple of days and, and hanged out with one of our friends. And on the last day, um, Ali and her friend decided that they'd go into Berlin. I think she was flying out from Berlin. And so she spent the day looking around Berlin. But while they were looking around, they went to some concentration camps. They paid the money and went along and had a look through a concentration camp in Germany. I've seen the photos. I've 
seen some of the plaques, I've heard the stories, and yet there's this eeriness to walking around this facility, empty. And yet as you think about it, you see and remember what took place there, the horrific nature of what happened there to Jews and to other people as they were killed, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And Ali shared with me that in one of the rooms, you know, they'd store the dead bodies, but that gets too full. So they'd go to another room, they'd just stack bodies on top of each other and they'd pull the jewellery off, they'd take the teeth out so they'd get the gold. And you just think how horrific and yet how eerie it would be to be there and have a look at a concentration camp. But also reminds me of Corey Ten Boom, who her sister Betsy and her found themselves in a concentration camp during World War II. They, they got put in a concentration camp because they hid Jews and they got caught. And so they spent time in a concentration camp and Betsy died there. Corey Ten Boom got out. And in 1947, she went from Holland to Germany to, to talk about the forgiveness of God. And, and she's sitting there talking to this crowd and a bloke walks in. He didn't recognise who she was, but instantly she knew who he was. He was one of those guards. And, and afterwards, she, she's just feeling terrible because he, he walks up the front and he comes to her and he says, I was at that concentration camp and I was one of those guards. So he didn't remember her, but he, she can remember him and what he did. And he reaches out his hand and he says, I'm now a Christian. God's forgiven me. Will you forgive me? She's thinking, what do I do in that? What do I do in that moment? Knowing who this man was. And she forgave him. That sort of gives us a bit of a taste of Jonah in a way. We we see the scandalous mercy of of God. We see that the, the gospel is for all people. That is for every nation, every tribe and, and, and every tongue, no matter how difficult it is. See, Jonah is, is more than a book about a fish, because the fish takes up about two verses of 48 verses. It's actually a book about, about God and his scandalous mercy. But as we're going to go through this book and as we encounter Jonah, we are going to actually learn that for all of us there is often this gap There's a gap between what we believe in our minds and what we know to this gap of it doesn't always shape how we live. We can confess that we, yes, God is sovereign. God wants all to be saved. We we can confess that with our mind, but then in our actions, they show something completely different. There's going to be a gap. And I actually... I actually think as we go through the book of Jonah, we're going to start to realise, we may laugh or mock or sort of roll our eyes at Jonah and think how terrible that is. But we're actually going to probably have our own hearts pierced as well. And I hope over this series that we as Christians will will grow in our understanding of God's scandalous mercy, we'll understand that gap. But also, if you're here and you're not a Christian, my prayer is that by the end of the four weeks, you'll see the scandalous mercy and grace of the God who created the universe. Now, most of us aren't in the same situation as Corrie ten Boom. But how do you view God's mercy? How do you view God's mercy in relation to that work colleague who's lied about you, stabbed you in the back and got the job promotion? How do you view God's mercy then? How do you view God's mercy when you've been slandered or falsely accused and what do you do then? Or or what do you do when someone reaches out for forgiveness who's done something horrific towards you? How do you view God's mercy then in your actions and in your deeds? But we come to verse 1. Have a look at verse 1. We have the word... Straight up off the cap, the word of Yahweh, the word of God has come to Jonah. This is a divine word. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who rescued Israel, who spoke to Abraham, who spoke to Moses, the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The word of Yahweh. Who's it come to? It comes to Jonah. Now we see elsewhere that this is put in history because of the name. He's the son of Amittai. We get that from two kings. Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet of God. He spoke on behalf of God to the people. 
He was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II around the 8th century, around 786 to 746 BC. Was that King Jeroboam II? Jonah serves during that time. We, we read that, that this king is evil. But yet we also see how with Jonah and Israel at that time in the northern kingdom, they're politically getting stronger. Their boundaries are increasing back to where they're going. They're having power and influence in the world. In a way, I wonder if Jonah is patriotic. He's excited. I'm from the northern kingdom. I'm an Israelite. And the word of the Lord comes to him. And what's the word of the Lord say? Look at verse 2. That word go is two verbs in the Hebrew. It says arise and go arise and go and call against Nineveh which is a not just a city it's a great city because their evil has come up before my face go and speak against it huh like we're in the northern kingdom we're going well in life you're saying go to the Ninevites they're they're our enemy See, for half a century, the Assyrians have been threatening the existence of Israel. You're saying go to, to them, the Assyrians in Nineveh. See, as the Assyrians were known as the world power of the day. But they weren't just a world power that's just sort of like America, but they were a threatening world power. They intimidated countries and, and nations by the way that they would conquer and take over. They, they wrote it in their scrolls about the things that they would do. They didn't write on scrolls, they wrote it on rocks, sorry. But they wrote about what they would do. They would conquer and they would, as someone was dying as the enemy, they'd cut their legs off and cut their left hand off and then they'd sit there as they would die and shake their hand. They'd sit there and they'd stretch you out alive and skin you. And then they'd grab your skin and they'd put it on the walls of that city to warn people. They would put dead bodies and stack them up. They would make the enemies cut the heads off their enemies. Right? They make them cut the heads off their fellow countrymen and put them on stakes and walk around holding heads on high. They were intimidating the nations. And, 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 and you say, go to Nineveh. Um, they deserve judgment. How could God ask me about that? And so that's where we get to today's passage. And we're going we're gonna to see four things from this passage. We're going to go through the story and then we're going to have four lessons. We're going to have four things about how Jonah is running and then we're going to have four lessons that, that have implications and they're going to be values of us here at, at Toon Gabby Baptist Church. The first one is of the four is that he's running from God. Running from God. He's not running because Jonah's got Nineveh and misspelt it in Google and it's just telling him to, towards Tarshish. It's not that he's just got it wrong and he's headed off. No, no, he, he's, he's made a decision to go in the total opposite direction. So Nineveh's to the east, Tarshish to the west. He's... Well, He's made a very distinct decision. Now, he's not only just made a decision. like He's not just ignoring the will of God. So here is the will of God. He's spoken. Not, he doesn't just stay in Israel around the other prophets who may have convicted him. But no, no, he, he leaves. I know better. Ambitions and motivations. And he doesn't stay. And he doesn't just wander just a little bit. But he chooses to head in the complete opposite direction. Have a look at verse 3. But Jonah ran. He ran away from Yahweh. He ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down. In chapter 1 and even chapter 2, there's this language of Jonah continually going down, down, down and down. Here he is. He's just on that downward spiral. He goes down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee. What does he, why does he want to go? He wants to flee. Literally, it says he wants to flee the face of Yahweh. Now, this is not, this is not a $6 opal fare on a train ticket ride from Circular Key to Manly. This, he's packed up his home. He's packed up everything and, and he's come down. This is a three-year journey round trip. This is a one-way journey. It's like me getting a one-way ticket to Greenland or Iceland. I'm not coming back. This is an expensive price to pay. Now, some people, 
Some commentators will say, it's, it's interesting, it's not, it appears not to just be a single fare. One commentator will say it seems to be that he's alluded to that he's actually purchased the, the ship. Is that urgent to get away? A one-way ticket. See, the Word of God, the Word of God pierces our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you see in this moment where, where Yahweh has just said, go, arise, it's actually pierced the heart of Jonah. It's actually revealing to us Jonah's attitude, his heart attitude and, and what he's thinking. Even though he's ignored it, it's actually God's word has penetrated it and revealed his heart. And see, by Jonah running... It reveals something about who he is. And we get to verse 4. And then the Lord sent a great wind, or, or another way, he, he hurled it, like a javelin thrower who hold, throws a javelin on target. Here, Yahweh hurls a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose. Right? Do you get it? It's, it's interesting here, isn't it? The ship threatened to break up. It's almost like the ship's thinking. It's thinking, to, we're going to break up. This storm is so bad. Running from God. Has Jonah forgotten the words of Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He's running from God. That leads us to the futility of running, see? It's futile to think that you can run from God. The futility of, of running. Jonah will keep running, but God's not going to let him go. And yet here as well, not only does Jonah run and it has consequences, but it has consequences on other people as well. See, often our sin, yes, it's ours and we have done it, but it can actually have consequences on other people around us. And here it does. Look at verse 5. The sailors were afraid. Now, these are sailors, right? They've done this before. And yet they're petrified. I'm, we're afraid. And so, just like God hurled down the wind and the waves, here they hurl the cargo out of the boat, hoping to lighten it. While what? While Jonah had gone down below deck, he's out of the way where he laid down and he fell into a deep, deep sleep. See, Jonah, he's at peace. He's at peace with his actions. Fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. I'm away. He's fast asleep, unaware of the storm that's raging outside his window. He's unaware in this moment of the mercy he needs. He knows Nineveh needs mercy, <laughs> but he's unaware of his own mercy in this moment. The futility of running. But number three, the, the still running. He still keeps running though. In verses 7 to 9, he goes further south again. He keeps going down. And so these sailors, they, they come to him. They, 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 they come to him. And the captain went to him in verse 6 and, and says, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice. See, he's asleep in this moment. In verse 1, Yahweh says, actually verse 2, God says, arise and go and call out against the Ninevites. Here he's asleep and the sailors come. Imagine him fast asleep, you know, just he's out of it. And then he hears his voice, arise and call out against. He's sort of, well, is that God here for a moment? It's not God, but it's the sailors. There's something going on outside. 
And they ask him questions. They ask him questions of his identity. Where are you from? What do you do? What's your religion? And, and he tells them all these answers. But there's one question he doesn't really answer. I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I, 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 I fear Yahweh. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He, he says that. It's like, hang on. If he feared, there's this disconnection, see? If he feared, he would have gone to Nineveh. But here he's running away. I fear Yahweh. He's not even a... But there's one question he doesn't answer. What is your occupation? He doesn't want to tell them he's a prophet. He's hesitant. He couldn't bring himself to do it, maybe. The irony of it, the irony that a prophet who speaks the word of God, he's here in this moment with Gentiles who don't know God and he doesn't speak. The irony is God has sent him to the Gentiles. God has sent him to go to Nineveh, Gentile people. They're not the people of God. And yet here on the ship, he meets Gentile people. And what's he do? He cuts himself off from them and he goes deep down into the bowels of the ship. The very people he was fleeing, the very people he was fleeing from, he's fleeing to. So he's still running, but not only that, point four, it's relentless running. In verses 10 to 16, Jonah is relentless in his running. But at the same time as we come to this point, not only is Jonah relentless in his running from God, God is relentless in running him down. God is always one step in front. God's mercy and his grace, we are going to see here that he is relentless with Jonah and the Ninevites. Look at verse 10. It terrified them. What have you done? They know that this wind and this waves is the wrath of God. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher and so they asked him, well, what, what, what are we going to do? What can we do to make the sea calm down? Well, verse 12, have a look. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. Pick me up and I'll become calm. And I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Pick me up and throw me over. Jonah would rather die than repent. He would rather die than see the Ninevites receive the mercy of God. He would rather be thrown overboard than to say, I am wrong. I, I wonder, do you ever think that? <laughs> Maybe not that extreme, get thrown over a boat, but I wonder, do you ever think I would rather have my leg cut off than repent of sin. I would rather stay on the same path that I am on than see my path change. Pride gets in the road, doesn't it? The Pharisee, the, the one who prays. Lord God, I am so thankful I'm not like that person over there pride I'm not wrong I'd rather die than eat my pride I wonder do you ever ignore sin maybe you're caught up in running maybe you're caught up in running that you don't even know you're running Jonah, I fear Yahweh. We can have those religious expressions, can't we? We can have, oh, I'm a spiritually good person. Look at me. I pray so well. I attend church so often. I'm a spiritually upright kind of person. I'm, I fear God. And yet you could be totally unaware that you're running away from the King of Kings. You, you, you're actually running to yourself. I want to be the king. See, Jonah says, my plans are better. I don't want you, God, to interrupt my decisions and my plans. And we can run without even knowing we're running. 
And yet the, the irony is that Jonah was running and it actually resulted in the repentance of the sailors. Did you see that? As, as at this the men greatly feared Yahweh and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Jonah does none of that. Does none of it. And for Jonah, he has a front row seat. He's at a front row seat as a prophet of God to see the grace and the mercy of God. He is aware of the grace and mercy God has shown the Israelites. They didn't deserve God's love. Abraham was a pagan, idolater, worshipper. And yet God chose him that through him all nations will be blessed. He knows what God did, redeeming Israel out of Egypt. He knows that Israel did not deserve the favour of God. And yet God still reached out his arms of mercy and ran down his runaway people. And Jonah has seen that. And yet Jonah has experienced God's mercy, he's experienced God's grace, and yet he still has a lot to learn about life. The disconnect. And you and me, we're in a remarkable position as well. We're this side of the cross where we've seen the grace of God ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, where God himself would lay down his life for his people. And guess what? We still have a lot to learn too. Because there's this disconnect, isn't there? There's this gap between we're happy to receive the mercy of God I don't know about someone else. We like receiving it, but others need to receive judgment and justice. And yet, in the, yet deep in the midst of our storms and our thinking, there is mercy, abundant mercy. Because see, here in this text, we see that God is sovereign. God is sovereign in his relentless pursuit in our futile efforts to run from him. God is sovereign in his relentless pursuit in our futile efforts to run from him. So he's, he's been running from God. He's the futility of running. He's still running, the relentless running. And I wonder, the more and more we see Jonah, I wonder the more and more we see ourselves in Jonah. And so what we're going to do, we're going to have four lessons. The first lesson up there is the sovereignty of God. I want to share four lessons now from this passage, four things that stand out, four lessons for us that as we as a church, as we regroup and as we continue to run forward, as I share these four lessons, I also want those lessons to be values for us, things that we value that, that shape the culture of this church, things that we know. So it shapes how we act and what we do and how we move forward. And here is four lessons. The first lesson is God, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is everywhere in this text. Sovereignty means ultimate control. Ultimate control over all things, all matters, all affairs in heaven and on earth. God exercises, it's God exercising his rule over his kingdom. It's like a king and a queen who send out a decree and it's obeyed. See, Jonah is actually all about God. It starts with God and it ends with God. See, it's actually not about a fish, but the fish tells us something about God, that God is sovereign. All of chapter one, as it's laid out in front of us, reveals the sovereignty of of God. Verse 1, the Lord, this is God's word, the one who created the heavens and earth. I'm over all of it. Here's the word of God. But then we get to verse 4. Have a look. He hurls what? A great wind and a waves. It's, he's got control over that. You get to verse 7, and the sailors said to each other, let us cast lots. Who's sovereign over the lots? God. It falls on Jonah. 
When Jonah's thrown overboard, what happens? It becomes completely calm. God is sovereign. There is a mistake that we can often make about God, and this is the mistake we can make. It's called deism. It's where we think that God wound the world up. He created it just like a watch, and he wound the watch up, and he steps back, and the watch will just unwind, and he's, he's distant from creation. He's out, now, he is outside of creation, but he has nothing to do with it. But see, deism says God is not directly involved in his creation. But no, God is sovereign, right? Distance is no protection from him. See, no matter, none of us can run from God. None of us can get so far away from God that you'll never see our actions. You'll never see what we're doing or what we're thinking. Distance is no protection. For everything, including heaven and earth, belongs to him. The so-called 50 billion galaxies within our universe belong to him. Every wind, every wave is subject to his command. That means what God is going to do, he's going to do. See, in Genesis chapter 12, I've already alluded to it. God says to Abraham, through you, all nations, not just Israel. He says, through you, all nations will be blessed. And God's sovereign plan cannot be interrupted by you or me. We cannot interrupt it. We cannot disrupt it. Because see, God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God, that is lesson one for us. The sovereignty of God is a freeing and comforting doctrine. That means that whatever we're going through, he knows about and he's Lord over it. Even though we may not understand exactly and, and comprehend why this is happening. But second, the second lesson is we are to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I've alluded to this before, comfortable with being uncomfortable. See, after Jonah, well, in northern Israel, they're, they're flourishing, it's sort of boundaries are growing, they an evil king. But eventually, guess what the Assyrians do? They come in and they wipe out north, northern kingdom. They come out and they take Israel out. Imagine Israelites post Jonah, as the story of Jonah is passed down, they read of this and they go, but, but they're the ones who took us out. And God showed mercy to them. Maybe it's a bit like, you know, Corrie ten Boom, prior to prior World War II, possibly, you know. In 1930, it's show mercy to the Nazis. So, oh, that's going to be tough, right? But imagine in 1947 being said, Hey, go and show mercy to the Nazis. It's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. Do you ever have those moments? Do you ever have those moments where you go, I don't want to give that up. I don't want to give that comfort up. It'd make me too uncomfortable. But the reality is God's word actually makes us uncomfortable. Psalm 23, he, he leads us beside still waters, but he also leads us through the dark valley. We're happy to have the mercy of God extended to us, but we seek justice and judgment on other people. We want God's grace, but we want God's judgment against those people that I don't like, especially those who threaten us or hurt us, or threaten my Western Christian lifestyle here in Australia. I don't want that threatened, my comfortable life. We become comfortable in our pride. Pride develops comfort. One commentator said, if our primary concern in worship is our consumer preference, rather than the God whose name we praise. If we gaze upon the wicked around us and see mainly a threat to our Christian lifestyle, instead of seeing perishing sinners in need of the gospel 
And if we pray for forgiveness of our sins, but justice for the agents of a wicked culture, then it cannot be doubted that the pharisaical spirit of Jonah is in us. As I chat with people, you see their Christians, so you see their eyes roll. You see them smirk and they think, oh, they watch Q&A and they go, how terrible. They're threatening my lifestyle. As they read the Sydney Morning Herald, they think, what's coming of this, this, this world? It's going to affect me. They, they, they see them as a threat to their lifestyle and their comfort here in Australia, and yet they don't see them as perishing sinners. You see, that's what Jonah was doing. It doesn't see them as perishing sinners. I wonder how often do you make decisions in the life of church or suggestions you make in the life of church that are actually just about future comfort for you without a realisation of looking around us and seeing a perishing world filled with sinners. There's a cost, isn't there? Being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I, I remember, I was thinking about this this morning, and it's just a, it's a, not a big thing, but it's big, right? I, I remember me and Al dating. We're going, you know, first week she turns up to church. I was playing music, so she sat on her own. No one knew who she was. She sat down in a chair, and someone walked over to her and said, Could you please hop out? That's my chair. Comfort. How do they not know that she wasn't a perishing sinner who's in desperate need of God's grace? Being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I will do whatever it costs to get the gospel to go to them. I'm willing to be comfortable with being uncomfortable for the sake of perishing sinners. But see, one of the reasons... Well, I think that actually the main reason we aren't willing to be uncomfortable is this. We have an unrealized view of sin. We have an unrealized view of sin. See, that's what Jonah's doing here. He, he, he's in this moment going, I'm a wonderful Israelite. They're terrible. See, until you can see your own sin and that the only reason you are God's beloved is purely by his grace and mercy, you're not going to understand how God can be merciful to, how he can be merciful and just towards wicked people. Until we understand the depths and the depravity of our own heart and the sin that's there, not until we understand that will we be able to understand how God can show mercy to me and to them. Because I think we forget the reality, the reality of a heaven and a hell. We, we, we go, we know the reality, but do we really know it? Because to know that reality will actually shape your life. You need to know the depths of your sin. See, here's the reality. To believe in the mercy of God, you actually have to believe in the wrath of God. You get that? To actually believe in the mercy of God, you actually have to believe in the wrath of God. Because mercy is withholding something that you deserve. So if, if, if you go, yes, I've been showed mercy, it means you deserve that wrath. It's interesting, I, you know, as we look around the world at perishing sinners, really the reality is I'm the greatest sinner I know. You know that? Do you see yourself and go, actually, yeah, I'm the greatest sinner I know. I just don't always believe it. I have those moments in life every day, right? You have those moments where God interrupts. Well, you think it's an interruption to your kingly plans for society. For your life. You know, this week I was, I was reminded of that in my, my own life where my plans were interrupted by a phone call. 
my wife rang me and said, I've lost the keys to the car. And I just go, well, like, I'm just like, far out. Like, what do you want me to do about it? Because it's interrupted my day. And you know what I was thinking in my mind? As she said, I don't know where they are. I said, well, where did you leave them? Like, you know, just go, and f- you know, you've left them somewhere. What do you want me to do about this? I'm too far away. I can't do anything. It's interrupting my day. I'm too busy getting ready for this sermon today. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't do that. But I do. Right? See, in, in that moment, in, in that moment, I've sinned, right? Because it's just interrupted my plans. But God had a perfect purpose in that. The reality is we're, we're, we can sometimes be Sunday Christians, can't we? I wrestle with that. Maybe you wrestle with that. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and sing songs and, and have a, you know, feel warm and fuzzy feelings and, and to, to rejoice and to sing songs to one another, to hear God's word preached to us. And, and we, we sing songs where we go, well, I surrender all. I lay everything at your feet, God. I am here. All my life is for you. It's wonderful to sing those things, isn't it? But I don't know about you, but by the reality, by 8 a.m. Monday morning, I haven't. Have you ever realised that? We sing that, and yet for many of us this afternoon as we drive home and go around the roundabout and someone blocks us off, guess what we've done in that moment? You've interrupted my moment and you've just sinned and you've been your own king or your own queen of life. So we need to be, we, we need to be aware of the reality and the depth of sin in our life. Because see, until we grasp that depth, why do we need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus if we're not sinful? And when we have unrealized, when we have an unrealized view of sin, we believe we deserve God's mercy. We, we believe we deserve God's mercy, but those around us, like the Ninevites, don't. We see ourselves in Jonah, don't we? There's that disconnect, isn't it, that we wrestle with. Sometimes Sunday's great and then Monday's terrible, hell, you know. But there is a reality that we grasp, the reality of sin. I wonder, are you running from sin today? Because we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking we can actually get away with it. You know that? We think we can get away with it. But what's the reality? God's sovereign, he can see everything. But we keep running, we keep thinking we can easily tell ourselves, I can get away with it. Jonah thought he could. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He thought he was away. He spent heaps of money. And he's asleep at peace in the bottom of the boat, totally unaware of the damage and the chaos that's going on around him. He thought he was safe. And it tells us something, doesn't it? of our spiritual state. In the very midst of Jonah running from the will of God, he was at peace. Do you you notice there's there's a problem here then? Sometimes we might go, I feel at peace about this decision. I'm feeling a sense of peace right now in what I'm doing. That's what we've got to get. We've got to realign ourselves with the Word of God, right? We've got to keep coming back to the Word of God because our feelings aren't always a good thing on this. You know, we can feel at peace, but it could be totally out of the will of God. And yet you could be feeling absolutely terrible, uncomfortable, and be totally in the will of God. We need God's word to shape us and mould us. We too can run, can't we? We can run to the bottle. We can, we can run to porn, you know, that, that, that one-off clicks. It's okay, oh, it's not good. And then, but then you keep running and running and before long, it's every day and, and you're just at peace about it. 
It can be about your career, you can be running to your career, you can be running to having kids, running to the perfect family, running to a, being successful in your, your dad's or your mum's eyes or keeping up the family appearances <coughs> and you run once and then you run twice and before long you just, you're at peace about it. Whilst all the more you're deceiving yourself into thinking you can get away with it. See, running from the king is running to yourself. As Numbers says, surely your sins will find you out. You can't hide. And that's why we need a substitute. That's why we, we need not a reluctant prophet. See, Jonah was a reluctant prophet. But Christ was a willing prophet. So yeah, lesson number four is that Jesus, see, Jesus is the substitute. See? Jesus is the substitute. See, love is sacrificial. Love is substitutionary. Love is costly. It costs you something. It puts you, it changes your week. You know, think about parents. Like, oh, I'm a parent. And I think I whinge, Right? So I love my kids. But I remember those early days, they keep you up and you don't get no sleep, right? Now they want to eat heaps of food. It's costly. It costs my back pocket. You know, this week I'm thinking about what sport are they going to do? And you come to Sydney and you think, man, wow, cry because it's going to be costly for them to play sport. It's a cost, isn't it? They get to 14 and you go, man, I can't wish till they, I cannot wait till they get out of home so I can go on more trips and pay the house off quicker. But that's not love, is it? Because see, love is sacrificial. It's costly. It's costly. We need to lose our freedom so that they can grow. Kids need us to lose our freedom so that they can grow and mature. Jonah said, throw me overboard. See, the sailors knew God was angry. Throw me over and you will live. If I die, you will live. But the sailors, though, they, they showed mercy. But they also, these sailors also thought they could save themselves. Do you notice that? They kept rowing harder and harder. We can save Jonah. We can save ourselves. And maybe here today, you're in this room like that going, if I row harder, if I work harder, surely I can save myself. But you can't. See, Jonah, the book of Jonah reminds us that we cannot save ourselves. See, these sailors needed a substitute. <clears throat> and so what do they do? They throw Jonah overboard now, they think he's died, right? Who wouldn't? But we've got a hot, like, here's a, here's a key. When you read narrative, we, we don't want to jump too far ahead too quick. In a way, Jonah's dead. They're throwing him overboard. He has died so that the sailors could live. See, Jonah deserved that wrath because he'd been disobedient. But Jesus, in, in Mark, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many who went to a cross, who went and was our substitute, who died in our place, who died for the enemy. See, Christ is our substitute so that we could live. See, the sovereignty of God, we have four lessons, the sovereignty of God, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. We have an unrealized view of sin. We need to, have a, we need to be real with each other about the reality of our sin. We also have the reality, the beautiful gospel message that Jesus is the substitute where we can have life, where we can have life. See, the Old Testament anticipates the New Testament. Because one day, Jesus and his disciples want to cross over to the other side and so Jesus hops in the boat, his disciples follow. They hop in this boat and the wind and the waves come crashing in. Jesus is, a, Jesus is fast asleep in the boat while the wind and the waves crash over. Matthew describes it like a great earthquake. Whereas Jonah was asleep 
outside the will of God. Jesus is peacefully asleep because he's inside the will of God. He is God. Whereas the wind and the waves, they rebuked Jonah. They were the wrath, the judgment of God. Here you were rebuking his disobedience. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. We're going to die. And Jesus hops up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes the wind and the waves. The wrath of God that was meant to be poured out on all of us was poured out on him. That Jesus then would be in the garden of Gethsemane where he would cry out to his father and say, yet not my will, but yours be done. So he was fully in the will of the father, prepared to die on a cross. For us runaways, there is an overflowing abundance of mercy and grace for us at the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for that disconnection, this gap between what we know and how we act. Father, we are runaways. We deserved your wrath, but you sent Jesus the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice so that we might live. Father, may we trust that. Lord, and as we, as we continue over these weeks in the book of Jonah, may that gap grow smaller. Father, Lord, we are so thankful that you have shown us grace. You've shown us mercy. Father, may our hearts overflow that we want all those around us to receive that mercy and that grace. Father, help us with that. Lord, right now, many of us and all of us, we, 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 we have an unrealized view of how sinful we really are. Father, convict us. Help us each day to be reminded of your grace and your gospel and be reminded of our sin so that we delight more and have deep joy in Christ our Saviour. Amen.